If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12? We're looking at the first 14 verses, the passage right after the passage we talked about last week. If you uh, got my text this week, or if you sent in the text, uh, the little mechanism you all have with quotes that you can... I guess, write up, and if you text a certain number and put desert, you'll receive a a text back. Anybody do that this week? Anybody? (laughs) A couple? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, I would encourage you, if you have texting, don't waste 45 cents. Uh, But really, I texted a quote from the play, uh, Les Miserables. Who's seen that play before? Okay. Okay, good. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that I think is unbelievably illustrated through that play, or even through that book. If you've read the book, it's the exact same thing, actually a better story. And I'll encourage you, even this afternoon, if you have a chance and you reflect upon the sermon, maybe in your own family worship time, uh, to rent the movie or (laughs) rent the DVD and watch the movie or even get on YouTube and listen to uh, the play. Because it's an unbelievable expression of what is happening in our passage this morning. This unbelievable expression of the life of the law versus the life of grace. And this morning we're going to talk about how the life of grace, as it's lived out, triumphs over the law in every way. So let's read our passage and I'll pray for us. Again, this is Matthew chapter 12. Verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that might accuse him. So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthily like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray for the preaching of it. Father, we are thankful again for this morning to come together as your people and to worship you. We have heard you call us into worship. Father, we've confessed our sins and we've sung praises to you. 
because you alone are God. And Father, now we, we long to hear from you. We long to hear from your word. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you teach us? Would you open our eyes to what is happening in this passage? And would we leave here different people because we heard of Jesus? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I had a friend tell me this anecdotal story one time. And it goes like this. There's this crazy man. And he goes into the psychiatrist's office and he says, Doctor, I need help. And the doctor says, what's your problem? And this crazy man says, well, I'm dead. And the doctor says, well, this is interesting. How long have you been dead? And the crazy man says, oh, about a week. He says, well, this is fascinating. Come sit in my chair. Let's talk. And so they start talking about this crazy man and his obsession with being dead. And something pops into the doctor's head and says, hmm, this will get him. Let me ask you a question, dead man or crazy man. Do dead men bleed? And the crazy man sat there in the chair and thought, huh, well, if, if I'm dead, that means that my heart has stopped pumping, which means the blood is not flowing through my veins or arteries. So I guess dead men don't bleed. No, no, doctor, a dead man doesn't bleed. And so the psychiatrist said, hmm, well, I've got him here. So he takes a pen out of his desk and says, let me see your finger. He grabs the dead man's or the crazy man's finger and pokes him right there on the index finger. And out comes this huge, juicy drop of blood. And the dead man looks at it and goes, hmm, wow, I guess dead men do bleed. <laughs> That's a funny story. It's silly. But it makes a good point. And the point is this, that... Uh, this man's foundation, or his belief system, if you will, that he is dead, is leading him to wrong conclusions in his life. He's believing that he's actually dead, and his belief, his core belief that he's dead, trumps this core belief that dead people don't bleed. He's led astray. He is, doesn't understand the world. He's lost his grip on humanity and reality. This morning, we come across, really, the Pharisees and their crazy approach to life, which is all about the law. Their obsession with the law, the way they live for the law, and the way that, really, the, the Pharisees' obsession with the law and their foundational belief that the law is the most important thing is leading them astray, is leading them to understand life and to derive wrong conclusions about life. Jesus moves into this story and is communicating again with these Pharisees that they got it wrong, that they're wrong once again. Now we know, as we talked about last week, that Jesus is in the midst of this authority struggle with the Pharisees and him. You know, Jesus shows up on the scene, and what does he do? He starts healing people and starts teaching and all these people come to him. He gathers these huge crowds to himself. And the Pharisees are nervous. They're losing their importance or their influence on society. And so they're constantly approaching this teacher and saying, what is it do you believe about this? Hopefully to catch him in some kind of catch-22 where he'll say something and the people that follow him will understand him to be a lunatic or a liar. 
and to leave him and to come back to the Pharisees. And this doesn't happen, does it? Jesus continues to heal people and bring people unto himself, and the Pharisees are made furious or are caused to be furious over and over again. And the point that I have this morning, my main point is this, is that grace, the lifestyle of grace, or the worldview, if you will, or if I can put it this way, the operating principle or the organizing paradigm of grace, as you adopt it in the Lord Jesus Christ, will triumph any other worldview, mainly the law from the Pharisees, as we see in this passage. So the main point is this. The grace-driven life, which is the title of my sermon, uh, is this, is that grace will triumph over the law. And Jesus points out first in this passage by using the Pharisees that that if you organize your life based on the law, it's not going to lead to lawfulness, but it's going to lead to lawlessness. Having the law as, as an operating principle and an organizing paradigm as, or as a core belief or as the grid that you use to move out into the world and have influence will ultimately lead you to lawlessness and not lawfulness. And the first way we see this is in the Pharisees' religious idolatry, which is basically contained in their obsession with the Sabbath. Now, to understand really what's happening here, you have to understand the Pharisees and how they approach the Sabbath. The Sabbath really was their baby. If there was one law that they obsessed over out of the Ten Commandments, it would be the Fourth Commandment. It's the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And the reason they did this is because it was an outward expression of how righteous they were by keeping the Sabbath. And they loved the Sabbath so much, they, they made up or derived, if you will, 39 other laws that really protected or hedged around the Sabbath. Things like not walking, things like not talking, things like not eating, things that almost seemed silly. But yet they derived all these different things to protect the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a way for them to have influence over the culture, to have influence on those around them, because they were, you know, lords of the Sabbath. It was their baby, and they loved it. And it also was a way, the Sabbath was a way that they determined one's individual's uh, peace with God or their relationship with God. John 9 Verses 13 through 16 says this. Jesus just healed a a blind man on the Sabbath. And this is what John records. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, the blind man, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on his eyes, and I washed it, and and I washed it, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus healed this man on a Sabbath, gave, his, his, gave him back sight. And the Pharisees' first expression is that he's not from God because he has desecrated the Sabbath. They used it as a litmus test to understand who is righteous and who is not. You see, the Sabbath had become an idol for the Pharisees. The Sabbath was not 
uh, a means to an end. It was an end in itself for those Pharisees. And a life that is based upon the law, if you use the law as an operating principle, an organizing paradigm, or a core belief, if you will, it's ultimately going to lead you to lawlessness. It's going to lead you into idolatry. And Jesus confronts them in a way that's beautiful with respect to this. Uh, it's not an end in itself, but a means to an end. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says this famous saying. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the, man, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Meaning the Sabbath has no intrinsic value outside its value to man. And yet the, the Pharisees take this good thing that God has given his people and distort it and make it an idol in their own lives. You see, their distortion of the law has created an idol, which is really the definition of sin. Taking a good thing and distorting it and making it bad. The Pharisees loved the Sabbath because it ultimately gave them what they wanted. It gave them attention and influence and power. Again, I can't say it enough. The law as an operating principle and an organizing paradigm for which you base your life will not lead you into lawfulness. It only leads you to lawlessness, namely idolatry. Now, I think it's appropriate to call upon John Calvin after we just celebrated his 500th birthday some nine days ago and that great statement that he made that our hearts are idle factories, that everywhere we go and every experience we have, our hearts are bent toward making idols out of good things. And for the Pharisees, this rings true. They've taken the Sabbath and they've made an idol out of it because their life is based upon the law. Now, I asked about that text. I text a, a quote from Les Mis. And in Les Mis, you have these two characters. One is called Jean Valjean, and the other one is Javert. And Jean Valjean really represents the life that's been transformed by grace. And Javert, this police officer or captain, his life is identified by the law. And he's obsessed by the law. Jean Valjean is this protagonist, and Javert is this antagonist, and they're constantly at each other. And Javert, in this great story, is obsessed with the law. The law is his idol. He has based his whole life upon the law. It is his operating principle. And when you hear him sing within the play, he says things like this, I am the law, and the law is not to be mocked. The law will not be mocked. And then in his great expression of his own worldview, if any of you know this play, he sings a song called Stars. And he says this, He knows his way in the dark, speaking of Jean Valjean. Mine is the way of the Lord. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. Javert, this great police officer that's searching after Jean Valjean throughout this whole story, is basing his whole life on the law. And the reason he's searching after Jean Valjean is because Jean Valjean has broken the law. He has broken his parole, if you will. And Javert has no concept on how to understand that because his life is based upon the law. 
and he's idolized it. Secondly, if you use the law as an operating principle and an organizing paradigm, ultimately you're going to have a condemning heart. Your heart is going to be full of condemnation. We see this in verse 7 when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees on their abuse of the Sabbath. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, quoting Hosea 6.6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharise- what Jesus is doing here is really he's putting up a mirror. He's showing the Pharisees, he's saying, listen, the life that you are living based upon the law is ultimately all it is producing in your own life is condemnation for those around you. You're, you're, you're using this, you know, this story of David who, when he's pursued by Saul to be killed. He's starving and people with him are starving and he goes in to this priest and this priest gives him the, the loaves of the presence or the bread of the presence and he eats and takes of it. And yet he is not condemned for that because he's starving. Because again, the Sabbath is meant for man and not man for the Sabbath. And these regulations that the, the Pharisees put upon this are ultimately inconsistent and baseless. And Jesus is confronting them and saying, listen, this is producing condemnation in your heart. If your heart this morning, you feel it condemning people all around you, I would ask you to pause and to think, am I basing my life upon the law? When I approached ministry, I had this nugget of wisdom passed on to me when I was actually in junior high. Let me rephrase that. When I was leading junior high. I might have been acting like a junior higher. But. In junior high ministry, this campus minister, actually an REF campus minister, said this to me. He said, Parker, when you seek to minister to people, just know this one thing, that all of life is theological. Every aspect of your life is theological. And this is what that means. It means however you move out and relate to those around you, it's how you think God relates to you. If your life is full of condemnation, chances are you are relating to God, you're relating to a God that you think is condemning you for your law-breaking. If you're moving out into the world and apathetic to all those around you, chances are you think that God is apathetic towards you. All of life is theological. If you want to know what you think about your God, just evaluate how you move out and love people around you or how you interact with people around you. That will tell you how you understand your God. And the Pharisees understand their God as one that's condemning them. And ultimately, their own heart is condemning them because they know that they cannot fulfill this law. They know it and yet they suppress it. Javert, again, is another perfect example of this. In a scene where Jean Valjean is released from jail, the very beginning of the play or the book, he's released from jail, and he has this confrontation with Javert, the police captain who is identified by the law, and it goes like this. Now bring me prisoner 24601, who is Jean Valjean, uh, the character who's basically um, identified with grace. Your time is up and your parole has begun. You know, you know what this means. Yes, it means I'm free, says Jean Valjean. 
Valjean, excuse me. No, this means you get your yellow ticket of leave. You are a thief. You robbed a house. Valjean says, I was starving. You will starve again, says Javert, unless you learn the meaning of the law. Valjean is released from jail after 19 years, and his first experience is the law condemning him again. He can't get out from under this identity of being a thief from Javert. And Javert moves in, and what does he do? He condemns him. He's a free man. He served his time for his offenses. And yet Javert takes this opportunity to condemn him again. That's what, if you have the law as an operating principle and an organizing paradigm in your life, it's only going to bring condemnation for those around you. Because the law, or because you're ultimately your heart is condemning you because you know that you can't live up to it. Do you have a condemning heart this morning? Maybe you think God is condemning you. Maybe your understanding of God's grace needs to be resurrected this morning. And lastly, if this law is an organizing principle in your life, it produces an unloving spirit. Look at what happens with this man with a withered hand. This is what's fascinating about this passage. Most commentators believe that the Pharisees try to trap Jesus in this healing process on the Sabbath. And most commentators believe that this man with a withered hand is not there because he's looking for help. He's there because the Pharisees brought him to, to use him as a prop, basically, to confront Jesus. They don't care about this guy that's got a withered hand that basically is identified with an outcast. He's a nobody. And the Pharisees don't love him. They use him as a prop. He's a prop to them. The law will produce an unloving spirit in your life. Why? Because ultimately you feel unloved. You don't feel cherished. And that's playing itself out theologically in your own life. Just like the Pharisees do in this passage. You're going to use people for your own good. I like to say this and I use it all the time because I'm, I'm convicted in my own life by this. Is that we will manipulate our world to work for us. We're going to use people to get what we want in every way. Husband, wife, husbands and wives, you know this. You know how to manipulate your husband. You know how to manipulate your wife to get what you want. You have a spirit of unlovingness in your soul. And it's, I would say it's derived because you're basing your life on the law. And it's only producing bad things. Again, Javert, this great example of the law, comes to this really pointed time where Fantine, who is a, a single mother, I won't go into this, but she's a single mother, and she uh, has contracted, and she's dying. Well, I won't go into that, but she's dying. And she's just been unjustly accused of something in her life. She's unjustly accused of slapping this man. She has no money, and she's a single mother, and she's trying to make money for her daughter, Cosette. And she kind of dabbles in the world of prostitution to be able to make money. 
And this guy approaches her in an unjust way. And she ends up um, doing something that's not lawful. And so Javert shows up on the scene. And she cries out for mercy. Because Javert is, Javert, yeah, is saying, no, off to jail you go. And she cries out for mercy saying, please, is there no mercy? I have a daughter. She's yet this high. I need help. And I was unjustly attacked by this man. And what does Javert say? He says this. I have heard such protestations every day for 20 years. Let's have no more explanations. Save your breath and save your tears. Honest work, just reward. That's the way to please the Lord. He has no compassion for this woman who's unjustly attacked. He didn't love her at all. He loves the law. And he's obsessed with it. The law is only going to produce idolatry. It's only going to produce a condemning heart. And it's only going to produce an unloving spirit. If you use it as an operating paradigm. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Praise the Lord for that. He moves on, and he, as an example, expresses that the, the grace or the, the life that's based upon grace doesn't lead to uh, idolatry. It doesn't lead to a condemning spirit. It doesn't lead to unlovingness. Well, ultimately, if, you use, if grace is the operating principle and the organizing paradigm in your own life or the core belief that you have, what it's going to produce is more grace in your life. We see that... In Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And first we see Him being compassionate toward those in this passage. You know, the Pharisees move in with a condemning heart. And they're here to catch the disciples and their wrongdoing on the Sabbath. And again, this withered man who really is a prop to them and basically is worthless to them. And what does Jesus do? He takes up their cause. He fights for them. He fights on behalf of them. Because he's compassionate toward them. He moves into conversation knowing that the Pharisees are going to attack him. And yet he loves them so much that he's willing to take up their cause. He sees their need. He knows they need help. And he's compassionate toward them. He loves them. Grace as a, again, a core belief in your own life, is going to lead you to have compassion for those around you, not condemnation. Valjean is a perfect example of this. We talked about Javert, the, the protagonist. Now, Valjean excuse me, is the antagonist. I mean, yeah, the protagonist. Excuse me, I'm getting them mixed up. And he's very compassionate. What does he do? Well, we just talked about Fantine, this girl that's a single mother that's dying, and, and Javert moves in and condemns her for what she did. And she's on her deathbed, <clears throat> excuse me, and Valjean is there. He takes her to a hospital as she's dying. He actually gets her released from jail. And this infuriates Javert. He gets her released from jail, takes her to the hospital, and pays for her, her, um, her care. And she's sitting there dying. And he says this, Be at peace. My Cosette, Fantine, is dying, shall live in my protection. Your child will want for nothing. Good monsieur, says Fontaine, you come from God in heaven. 
And then Valjean says this, And none will ever, ever harm Cosette as long as I am living. What does he do? He takes up the cause of Fantine, and he adopts her, her little daughter, and he cares for her. He gives her everything she's ever wanted. He's compassionate toward this, this woman that's falling into prostitution and is dying. He loves her. But secondly, the grace-driven life, or grace as an operating principle in an organizing paradigm, will produce uh, a person that gives value to those that seemingly are unvaluable in life. We see that in how Jesus treats this man with a withered hand. I mean, the Pharisees moved in and treated him as a prop, a nothing, a nobody. And what does Jesus do? He takes up his cause and he loves him. The Pharisees see no value in this person. And yet Jesus does. This man has value as creating the image of God. And Jesus expresses that to the world around him. By what is he doing? By, what is, by, by, by healing this man. Not only healing this man, but healing this man in the midst of the Pharisees on the Sabbath in their synagogue. He knows what's coming. Don't think he doesn't. And yet he cares enough about this man and values him where the rest of the, where the, rest of the world would not. And he treats him with respect and care and ultimately heals him. The grace-driven life will produce a new care for those that are marginalized, those that are disenfranchised, those that otherwise have no value in society. You will care for and you will love because you yourself know that you have no value that in your soul you feel like you're irrelevant. And yet you have a God that valued you so much to give up His life that you might be somebody. You know, we're a group of nobodies that want to be somebody. And the only somebody became a nobody that we might be somebody. Lastly, the grace-driven life is going to lead to death. This is what puzzles me about this passage. Um, don't you think Jesus knew that if he was to move into the Pharisees' world and heal this man, which is breaking the Sabbath, in the midst of the Pharisees, that he was going to get it? Yes, he did. And this is what that means. It means that Jesus interrupts this unjust attack on these two people only to cause his own. Jesus interrupts these unjust attacks knowing that it's going to cost him his life. It's going to lead to his death. I mean, what does it say at the very end in verse 14? But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus knew this. He knew exactly what he was doing. which means the grace-driven life is going to lead you to death. It's where it's going. That's not sexy. That doesn't sell very well. But that's what the Bible teaches us. The grace-driven life is going to 
drive you to die to yourself, to see others more important than you, to die to your desires and hopes in life so that others might have their desires and dreams met. That's where the grace-driven life is leading you. It's not leading you to be obsessed with your own hopes and dreams and to stomp your foot and say, don't I deserve this out of life? The grace-driven life is leading you to death. And we see that plainly in this passage that Jesus takes up the cause of these individuals knowing that's going to cost him his life. Now, when you preach from a narrative or you read a narrative, you're supposed to think to yourself, who do I identify with in this passage? Who is it that I identify with? And so I ask you this morning, who is it that you identify with? Do you identify with the Pharisees? Or do you identify with Jesus? And don't, this is what I do. Don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. It's time to be honest with yourself. Does your life identify with idolatry? Does your life identify with a condemning spirit or you know, an unloving spirit and a condemning soul? Or is your life identified with, with love and care for those around you? Is your life identified by ascribing value to those that seemingly are unvaluable in society? What a question to ask. Because I think we all, at times in our lives, identify with the Pharisees if we're honest. Because we struggle to understand God's grace in our own lives. Tim Keller said... uh, in a sermon one time I heard him preach, he said, grace is the hardest thing you'll ever understand. To understand grace is a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. And we've been given grace in Jesus. And yet we run back to the law. We run back to trying to validate ourselves by our obedience. But the truth is, to have this grace-driven life you have to be associated with the grace giver. Sure, we're all Pharisees in here. And you know what? Sure, we're all uh, grace-driven people too. But the only way that we will experience the grace-driven life is if we're united to Jesus. And as Jesus lives that life out from among us. Paul says it's best in Romans chapter two, verse, I mean, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If you want the grace-driven life, you need to know Jesus. Jesus is the one that will work out the grace-driven life in your life. From among you. It's not produced by your own hard work. In that sense, I would say, don't neglect the means of grace that God has given you. This morning, we celebrated baptism. It's a sacrament. It's a means of grace for you this morning to reflect on how God has been faithful to you. That God, through His grace, regenerated your soul and welcomed you with open arms and said, You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And that will never change. 
read your Bible. I mean, it's, <laughs> I need to hear that. You know, and I have REV in front of my name. And how silly is that? But we need to read our Bibles. We need to, to embrace and absorb the story of grace. Pray. Wear out. Put some calluses on your knees. Get on your knees and pray and ask God to be faithful to you and to love you. And He promises He will. The grace-driven life comes from Jesus and faith in the Lord Jesus, not from any kind of hard work. Sure, we all resonate with the Pharisees. But Jesus is producing the grace-driven life in you. And we all long to have it. This morning, I would encourage you, as you leave, to think of what is it in your life that you are holding on so tightly that if it was to be stripped away from you, your life would fall apart. What is that? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your significance? What is it if something was stripped away from you, your life would fall apart? What are you dreaming about? What consumes? What devours your time? Ultimately, that's going to be the idol in your life that's keeping you from the Lord Jesus. And I beg of you to repent of that and to turn and to run back to Jesus, calling out, I need forgiveness. Produce the grace-driven life in me, please. Because I love you and I love your kingdom. And I want to be used by you for the sake of the cause of grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word. And the way that you have, through your love, made us somebodies. Father, you, as we read of you in your word, are the gracious one. And Father, you have been so gracious to us as to enter into our lives and produce grace to those around us. Father, would you encourage us this morning, even though we we tend to resonate with the Pharisees, Father, you are producing in us the grace-driven life. Because you love us and you love your kingdom and you love your church. Father, increase our faith in you this morning. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.